1: This week on the Gegen Pod, we've got a stellar lineup to break down all the best and worst and the big talking points of the Premier League weekend. Former Premier League star Michael Bridges and former Matilda Amy Duggan are joined by Jake Rosengarten as we look at Manchester United's win against Liverpool, Leeds in Dreamland against Chelsea and Newcastle United and Manchester City giving us an insight into the future of where the Premier League is going, the cellar dwellers and the managerial sack race plus what's going on in La Liga. There's only one week of the transfer window to go and we even analyse a bit of singing involving a Socceroos legend. I'm your host Teo Pelizzari. let's get in to the Geggen pod. It is indeed a stellar lineup for the Geggen pod today. We've got former Premier League star Michael Bridges, former Matilda Amy Duggan, and the sports editor here at Optus Sport, Jake Rosengarten. And we love to start the show by hearing your best and worst from the weekend. But let's start with the best moment from the weekend. Michael Bridges, you've got so much to choose from. What was your best moment?
2: My best moment from the weekend's action has to come from Elland Road. The atmosphere, the result, the work rate of the team, it was absolutely incredible. I was there to witness it and my word, I've played at Elland Road before in Champions League football on European nights in the Premier League. This game and the atmosphere was up there with the best I have ever seen. The fans reacted to the players' performance. I loved it. Well done, Leeds United.
3: Well, my favourite moment is United not being on the bottom of the ladder anymore after that passionate team display. I think spurred on a little bit by running their butts off the day after they lost to Brentford. But uh, if I just pick one moment from the weekend, honestly, the Kieran Trippier free kick for Newcastle um, against City that gave them the 3-1 lead. It was an absolute stunner, uh, especially when you read the backstory later when he said after that uh, Fabian Shah wanted to take it, but he was the one that felt super confident that he'd scored. And I just I love that. I love a player just getting the ball and saying, no, nope, this one's mine and I'm going to make it count. And And it was a ripper.
0: I'm going to have to go with the uh, surprise league leaders, Taylor Arsenal, uh, actually Alexander Zinchenko's reaction to William Saliba's goal where he basically, after watching the uh, 21-year-old defender put one top bins, uh, fell to his knees, put his hands on his head and just went, how on earth did that just happen? Unbelievable.
1: That's right, Arsenal, the only team with a perfect three-from-three record. So it means that other teams are dropping points and that might lead us on to our worst moment of the weekend or maybe just your least favourite moment of the weekend. Bridgie, what was your low point?
2: I didn't go for one moment, but I've gone for a team performance and it's West Ham. I don't know what is going on with them. Yet to score a goal in the Premier League they Look, absolutely shocking. Don't know what is going on there. Big problems and um, another defeat without a goal. Problems at the Hammers. 2-0
1: home loss to Brighton, of course. Amy Duggan, your low moment of the weekend?
3: Well, it's actually just another goalkeeping howler, isn't it? I'm really sad that Schwartz is not here so he can give me the rundown on the stupidity of this one. Uh, Mendy had a nightmare. Uh, As a defender, you know, you've moved out of the box to allow your goalkeeper some time and some options, and then seriously, I just don't know that he didn't learn from David De Gea the week before. So, yeah, just a messy moment that I think, you know, will go down as a big low light for him.
2: That was actually one of my highlights. I've got to see. You, Amy. <laughs>
3: <laughs> of course it was.
0: I'm going to I'm going to have to flip side Amy's best moment for my worst moment as a Liverpool fan watching the display from Liverpool at Old Trafford yesterday was an absolute shocker. They were atrocious. Bridgie, that seems like a good cue to
1: talk about what's wrong with Liverpool. 2-1 loss to Manchester United. I know Amy's going to want to talk about Manchester United's response and how good they were, but I think we need to put the the heat on Liverpool to begin with, because in the title race, this is the big story. They obviously only have two points from their first three games. What were your observations on the match, and why do you think it's come to this uh, that we're already talking about them falling off the pace at this early stage of the season?
2: do you know what it is after the the start of the season that they've had it's been very sluggish unlike them they have however had a lot of injuries to contend with and you know the suspension hmm. didn't help neither with the red card last week but when i looked at this game going ahead when you think the manchester united start of the season that they've had you know, absolutely horrendous getting played off the park by Brentford and then getting punished for it by Tanhaga the following day. And you're going into this game, and there was a lot of pundits saying that it was going to be one way traffic. Well, there's a lot of history between these two clubs, they absolutely hate each other. And I was delighted to see a reaction. Now, the problems with Liverpool from Man United for this game, the way they stepped up, but I've got to say, Liverpool looks so lackluster. Van Dyke didn't look the same player. Milner had three or four goals and i the captain due in the game to say, sort yourself out, why didn't you press the first goal? But when I looked at the midfield with Milner, Henderson and Elliott, and I'm thinking, do you know what it is? That is not a strong midfield for the for this game. Um, Milner, agent, lovely professional footballer but hasn't got the legs Henderson, I do like him and Elliot still coming back from an injury but were they really going to put their stamp on this game in a big moment when the pressure was on? No and then you look at the bench and it was I thought it was a shambles to see Fabinho coming on when you're 2-0 down a defensive midfield player or a guy that plays centre-half there was nothing on the bench that was going to change this game for Liverpool so I really think they have massive issues and it's the injury crisis that they have because they they haven't got that luxury of the rotation at this moment like the other teams have.
3: Yeah, that that's right, Bridgie. You're all over it. There was just there was no midfield on the weekend. I think it would be fair to say they were passengers. You have a look at their structure; they were everywhere. Um, the on-field argument, obviously, between Milner and Virgil Van Dijk, and I know Klopp has you know played that down, but we all saw it. So you know, there's tension there, and as players, that that breeds. Um, that breeds on the, the pitch. The other thing that I think was really interesting, apart from their really long injury list, I mean, they've got Naby Keita, injured or unhappy, depending on which report you read, Joda Tiago, Jones, Oxalade chamberlain Darwin Nunez, obviously on his suspension. Um, they have picked up two points from nine, but the players actually noticed how quiet the stadium was during warm-up, and I thought that's really interesting from them because – um, you know, you've talked about it, Bridgie, at Leeds already, how, you know, the players feed off the fans and, and they really noticed how quiet it was. But individually and collectively, they need to pick up their performances and really quickly. But I believe um, I actually agree with you, which is hard to say, Bridgie, but there was no midfield and they, they didn't have any oomph or power to come off the bench or any game changer for them to to pick up, which we saw in some other games on the weekend.
0: Yeah, I might pick up there. I think... The midfield is one thing and it's been an area that Liverpool fans have been sort of begging for reinforcements for a while now and a few names have been linked over the years. Um, Klopp maintains that they have sort of the depth in that area that they need and when you look at the names who are injured they probably do when everyone is fit but at the moment you're absolutely right you looked at that bench and you went all right well who's going to come on and change this game and at the peak of and Liverpool at their very best particularly in the sort of middle to end of last season it was as soon as someone came out the player who came in regardless of who it was stepped up we saw it with Simakas we saw it with Kelleher We saw it with Jones a few times throughout the season. And the sort of start to the season that Liverpool have had hasn't had that same sort of intensity. It hasn't had that same level of performance where where the squad are sort of bringing each other up. Um, I personally, I mean, having watched um, the first couple of games of the season as well, feel like there's a bit of a weird issue going on with Liverpool's attack. uh, The way that they've sort of set up since Luis Diaz has arrived, they've stopped... Um, inverting as much the wingers as they were. And Roberto Firmino was playing so unbelievably high yesterday. They didn't have a focal point. And Mo Salah was almost out of the game for large periods. And um, it's just bizarre. I think the the way that they set up sort of needs a tweak to, to get the best out of um, Salah again and Diaz because I, I feel like sitting that wide, they're just not getting the ball enough. So I'm trying to get to the bottom of this though here,
1: Bridgie. Was this the result of Eric Ten Hag and a tactical-based approach? Or are we talking purely about intangibles? Liverpool not feeding off the crowd. Their players weren't up for the big occasion, particularly the midfielders, uh, yourself and Amy mentioned. And Manchester United had spent a week being absolutely hounded in the media with every possible problem being scrutinised. How much of this was a football-based solution for Eric Ten Hag? And how much of this was emotional uh, vibes and the occasion in order to lift his team's level of performance?
2: I think both have got to take accountability. The players reacted; uh, they knew the fans were looking at doing a, a protest against the Glaziers and also they had to be, um, you know, roll their sleeves up and put in a performance at home in front of them fans to make sure they got them on their side to show, you know, every fan doesn't matter what world be, as you've got. If you don't put in the effort in the work rate, you're going to get abused and you're going to get slammed for your performances. So they knew they had to roll up their sleeves. They did that. They tried to win every tackle they could. They were on the front foot from the get-go. And then you've got to look at the manager, Tan Haag. He made some big calls. Uh, Sancho, Alanga and Rashford playing down, played Rashford down the middle. Uh, not his favourite position, but what he went for was three very, very fast players that he knows have got the dynamics to play counter-attack. So when you've got Trent Alexander bombing on, and you've got Robertson, the left-back, pushing on. They're the areas that they've tried to exploit, as most teams do against Liverpool. There's not a lot of other alternatives you have against Liverpool, because, you know, to get beat for the first time in the year, it's absolutely incredible. Then you drop Maguire, and you put in Varane and Martinez, who, you questioned me the other day, T on the last podcast, you said, is he the man? I raved about this guy. It doesn't matter about the stature of him, he's a footballer, and if you saw the amount of tackles that he made and thrown his body on the line, and the the aerial battles that he's winning for such a small guy, I'll tell you what, the, the, I said he was a diamond, he's a very, very special player, this could be the centre-half This could be the centre half, um, solution that they have been looking for and I just thought, man to a man, um, they outplayed and outclassed every player on that Liverpool field and that is credit to them because the week before, they were a disgrace.
1: Well, this is the, the burning question now, Amy. Manchester United's fixture list, 9.30pm Eastern uh, on Optus Sports Saturday. Perfect time for everyone to watch. Southampton away. And then they've got Leicester away. Is it as simple as they've turned the corner, six points from six, things back on track? Or uh, are their fans going to be back in open revolt because they might drop points to two very beatable teams
3: coming up in their next two? I think if they play with the passion and the commitment... Um, and the effort that they put in against Liverpool, they will they will be okay against Southampton and Leicester. I feel if Ten Hag takes his foot off their throats, then there is the chance that that happens. I, I don't see that happening. I feel like they've turned a corner, um, but I, I don't think it's about their ability, is it, Bridgie? Like they're all they're all capable, and the the team list is you know. Yeah is up there. So they're absolutely capable of the win. And I think, you know, Leicester's, Leicester's just Leicester. I'm not worried about that game too much. But the Southampton game is a threat. But I think ultimately if they put in the commitment that they put in last weekend, then they'll be hey, okay. Amy, the
2: biggest threat is if you don't perform and you don't run under this manager, what is he going to do? Well, what did he do last week? You were just telling me after they had a bad performance.
3: Well, So, yeah, like he took the difference between the two sides' kilometres on the park, which is 13.8 Ks, He cancelled training on their day off that they normally get. The boys turned up and he made them run. So they did a 13.8K run on their day off after losing to Brentford because that was the difference in the kilometres that they put in on the park. If that's not the carrot and stick mentality with the stick absolutely smacking, I will give him credit though, Bridgie, because the coach, the gaffer, got out there and ran with them. And that says a lot he says i'm part of this performance and i'm taking responsibility yeah. for it too but i am going to teach you a lesson
2: well the difference between me and him i would love to have taught my players a lesson as well and done a very similar thing i would have only made five k's if i'd have joined in because i tried it this morning I you'd and be i was sitting in
3: the stand drinking beans
2: but bridgie
1: you've been in that environment where managers are demanding and they want that heightened level of emotion and performance every week The pressure's off a bit now. As I said, they are perceived to be less threatening games. As much as the fans are going to want the Glazers out every week, they're not going to be protesting at the stadium because they're both away games. Is this actually the bigger test of Ten Hag? Because now he has to find that emotional level from his team for matches where they go and expect it to win rather than perhaps the weekend just gone where it was a free hit do you know
2: what it is I really think that his self and his staff would have looked at the 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 fixtures after that win against Liverpool and thought do you know what it is I wish we were playing another team that were in the top half of the table that uh, mm. were big big hitting teams because the vulnerability of a Southampton with Hasselhoet under pressure Rogers trying to get you know they've lost a lot of players they're under pressure I don't think it's the game United need I, I think they needed a, another high class team to come and give them that challenge I just hope they don't switch off and mentally they go out with the same attitude um, because it could be very very vulnerable for them too
0: I think the other interesting thing about Southampton as a test is that obviously we've seen it I found it quite interesting the way that Ten Hag played, obviously, sort of abandoning his playing out from the back and playing counter-attacking football was almost quite similar to the way Ole Gunnar Solskjaer used to set up with this team, and to get the best out of the likes of Rashford, the likes of um, Martial um, back then. So we know they can do it. We know they can play on the counter and do that. But the the problem and the question is, and this is where sort of Solskjaer almost fell down in his tenure, and where the fans were getting a bit up in arms, is when United are asked to dominate the ball and create chances and break down a packed defence themselves. Can they do that? And I think we're about to find out because that'll be the real test.
3: Yeah, they, they played a lot more direct and they went back to basic foundations of, you know, winning the 50-50s, not giving the ball away, not making stupid mistakes. And I think you're right, Jake, that the test will come when they they do outpossess a team and how creative they can actually be.
2: Be interesting if some of the players actually had an input after that Brentford game when they were playing out at all costs. Because like you say, it changed the dynamics. It's very unlike... Uh, a Dutch coach to go against their vision and philosophy and I don't know whether he's had a little bit of feedback from the players to say you know what it is can we just go a little bit and, and if he's got that what, what that gives him, he gets buy-in from the players as well if he's actually willing to listen to them rather than saying it's my way, the highway. So I'm waiting to see over the next but, couple of weeks if anything like that comes out of this um, dressing room.
0: But that's, that's the question really, isn't it? So Paul Scholes was on, was on our coverage yesterday saying that this, this could be the template for Manchester United, but can the template for Manchester United, the biggest club on the football in, in the world, can it really be sitting back and playing on the counter-attack against teams that are weaker
2: teams in the Premier League? If it's effective, why not? You've got to use everything in your ability and it's there's no problem. Would you, as, I mean, as fans, would you, would you be bothered? No, if you're winning games, who cares how you, how you play? If it's an effective way, if you're going to play out every week and get beat 4-0, then you want to try and play, play pretty football. Are you really going to go and watch and support that brand of football? No, you're not. So you've got to be careful what you wish for and how you, how you, um, how you go about your business.
3: I think we'd just be happy with consistent wins.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Take the points, run. <gasps> Jake, where to from here for Liverpool?
1: Bournemouth at home, but then not the easiest run. They've got Newcastle at home, Everton away, Chelsea coming up within the next month away as well. Is it too early to say that they've lost touch with Manchester City, given they did reel them in last season, but obviously it's a very different dynamic in this
0: campaign? Uh, I think it's definitely too early to be riding off a team that we've seen put up 90 points in three different seasons over the last five years. But at the same time, I mean, it, it's already looking really tough. Uh, they're seven points off Arsenal. They're five points off Tottenham and City um, after three games. And they don't look even remotely at it. They're not at the level. I mean, I think that there's no such thing as easy points in the Premier League at the moment. I mean, even you look at Bournemouth. I mean, Scott Parker put a rocket up his players on the weekend um, after their performance. Uh, and I think that whatever happens from here, I mean, you talk, they got to go play Newcastle, who just... Contended with City Top Um, 4
2: contenders by the way Top 4 contenders
0: A hundred percent, but you look at Newcastle, you look at Brighton and teams like this that are on the up and they're, they're playing some really good football and they've got managers who simply know how to set them up to play against these big teams and the points aren't going to come easy.
2: Can I just say as well, when you think about the Premier League season, there's one thing I've always said because I've played in it. The Christmas period is the toughest period in the Premier League because the games come thick and fast. A lot of the foreigners are going to uh, you know get get themselves ready for that winter period coming, that come from the hotter climates. However... This season, that's not going to be the case. We've got the interruption of a World Cup coming. So there's going to be a lot of players that are going to come back from the World Cup either underdone, either on top of the game or injured. It's going to be interesting to see how. So I, I, I'm, you cannot write anything off this season or any team off going into the Premier League because it is going to be such a different dynamic because of the World Cup in November, December.
1: All right, Michael. You mentioned your favourite moment of the week was being at Elland Road. Just how different is it to when you were playing for starters? The experience going along as a fan. Does it feel the same? Does it feel different after so long away? And then take us through what on earth happened on the field and how Jesse Marsh got his team to smash Chelsea three 0
2: Do you know what it is? You still get that buzz when you turn up the ground. You know, it's nice to be nice to be remembered. Some of the you know some of the fans coming over and having a chat and saying you know, great memories and things. Wish you never got injured, and it's great. And then you know you you see the players coming out in the field and you just want to have a go and then you see the pace of the game and you realise why you've retired and you know you can't play anymore (laughs) it was absolutely relentless now having been with them pre-season and seeing Jesse Marsh what you've got to take into consideration from the players and the, the, the feedback I've had from some of the players there is that under Bielsa they wouldn't have changed it for the world because they loved where that guy got them to some of them wouldn't have played international football let alone Premier League football however They didn't have a relationship with the manager. He was very, you know, very eccentric, standoffish, but tactically brilliant. Now they've gone from one guy to the other. He's so charismatic, and the energy levels that I witnessed him in the video sessions when he was explaining how he wanted to play to the players, it was contagious. And I kid you not, he, he got me and uh, Tony Drago, who are well retired, actually going. We can go out and play here, so I can see how he's motivated the players to go out and put on that performance. However, when I saw them in Australia, they were still a little bit disjointed in the final third and what they got, they got it absolutely spot on. They were clinical, um, and they fed off the atmosphere and the ground, and just being part of it, like I said, I I was blown away by the atmosphere. It's probably the best atmosphere and best performance I've seen in Elland Road for... Even even before my time, I've got to say, it was that electric. I, I hadn't witnessed an atmosphere like that, to be fair. So it speaks volumes. What a performance. And um, Chelsea, you know, I, I, they got down to 10 men. That was a disappointing thing because you see a red card and people go, oh, Chelsea must have been absolutely rubbish. No, Leeds were incredible. And they're going to have a great season if they go out with that mentality under Jesse Marsh.
3: I just think he's such a competitor, Bridgie. but, you know, the crowd um, interjection as a player, you want to entertain a crowd that wants to be entertained. And I think, you know, you thrive under that. But uh, back to Jesse Marsh, like he would have known what people have been saying about him over the past couple of months. I don't know whether he cares or doesn't care, but... To me, he seems like a guy who's all about heart and hard work, and I feel like that's what we saw from his team on the weekend. They literally overwhelmed the opposition. Like they wanted everything more. Um, and and it's paying off for them. Seven points from their opening three fixtures. They're sitting sitting third. <laughs> Can't believe we're saying that. Um, Jack Harrison was he was great. He got the goal and obviously an assist. And contender I
2: think, for England, by the yeah. way. If he doesn't get in the selection process for England with his performances, there's something wrong.
3: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting matchup here though because he had a US upbringing, and I think you know with Jesse Marsh's US background as well that they're just they get each other and they get the style that he's trying to play. Um, his summer signings. Also, you know, Aronson got a goal. Tyler Adams in the midfield was awesome. Mark Rocker, they were they were all standout performers on the weekend. And when you can have the majority of your players buzzing and playing good football, you know, you know you're know you going to put on a show. Chelsea, I, I almost feel You've got to for... remember,
2: Amy, you've just mentioned the American players there. You've got yeah. to remember, obviously, the manager, Jesse Marsh. Four, uh, 49ers own a percentage of Leeds United, and the market for them is America, obviously getting the American players in. This this club and this um, affiliation they've got with the 49ers with a buy-in, I'm telling you, there's big things happening at Leeds United over the next few years. Obviously, last season, it was a massive thing. They had to stay in the Premier League. And um, off the field, there is a lot of things going on for the future of this football club because of the investment from the from um, the 49ers.
1: Yeah, but Bridgie, do we need to pump the brakes and say, get to 40 points and then we're happy? Or do you think Leeds, <laughs> do you think Leeds can actually start to aspire oh to bigger things, mid-table, maybe even push on a little bit further. What is the ceiling of for them this year? Or do you think they are still taking that approach of 40 points, avoid relegation first?
2: Leeds had four points last season after seven games. They've now got seven points after three games. So do the maths. It's like you say, it's all about getting them, them um, points on the board. And all they're looking to do is better last season's progression. They are streets ahead. They're actually 10 games ahead of their um, projected figures from last season, uh, which is what the manager and the staff have been showing the players. But the magic number, as we all know, Ranieri started it. It is the 40 points. So seven points out of um, nine. Bridgie, that's a good you, start. Um,
0: you, you spoke about, obviously, their season tour before, which you were a part of. And I was also over in Perth to watch them play. And to be honest with you, I was almost a little bit underwhelmed with, with what they put out in that game, um, that they played over there against Crystal Palace, and I yeah. looked at them on that preseason tour, and I was like, you know, they're all right. We'll see. They could be in trouble. I mean, did you see anything on that tour where you were like, all right, they're going to hit the ground running here? I mean, for me, watching from the outside, I was like, all right, there's there's a bit of trouble here for
2: Leeds. Maybe they could be they could be scrapping again.
3: I was worried about them too, Jake.
2: Off the field and on the on the field, more so. Like you say, they looked disjointed. Looked like they'd run out of ideas. Didn't attack in the wide areas. Everything was very directed and narrow and centrally but Jesse was always about the regain in the Gagan press and the oh, Red Bull press and how you win the ball back he calls it the counter press and I was blown away by how he was trying to get his messages across to the players so never in doubt about the tactics once the players got it on board um, but the couple of the players yes Aronson in pre-season look very lightweight well I'll tell you what the Premier League he has hit the ground running and he Teams can't catch him, players can't catch him. Cooler Bolly got caught out a couple of times, um, ended up getting a yellow card, then a red. But the one that has absolutely come through that was sulking in pre season is Rodrigo. He'd obviously lost Rafinha, um, he, his mate had gone to Barcelona, and you could see that he was upset that he wasn't getting a little bit of game time pre season because a Sinistera had come in as well with Aronson. So. He was, his body language wasn't there. He didn't see him right. Now, as soon as Sinisterra got injured, he's got his opportunity and his strike rate. I mean, what, the goals he's scoring, it's just been incredible. And he, he's not known for his goal scoring. So he's taken it on board. He's had the kick up the backside he needs needed. And now he does look like the Spanish international player that Leeds United signed. So um, it's taken him a while to adjust, but I'm pleased he's got his head in the right place. But he was the, definitely a shock for me. I
3: think that's where the question was coming before the before the season, wasn't it? Is that... um. They signed very well and, you know, they replaced Rapinha with Sinistera and obviously he's injured. But the question was where are the goals going to come from, Bridgie? And I think, you know, it's probably come from a surprising place.
2: Completely, and like you say, I think they're going to share it about as well because Aronson, um, outstanding when you've got Jack Harrison as well, getting more centrally when there's crosses coming in from the right hand side. I think Leeds can share the goals around more than more so than relying on a certain player last season in, in Rafinha, basically. Newcastle
1: versus Manchester City, three all draw. Bridgie, another of your teams having a very good result this weekend. How high can Newcastle go now that they've effectively proven themselves with their combative spirit in this game?
2: I felt my Twitter account go absolutely ballistic once um, Optus had put it out that I had Newcastle in the top four. For my um, Premier League top four predictions, I got (laughs) laughed off the planet. Um, But when you consider how they finished last season, and I know all three of you would have been having a little chuckle as well, going he's just supporting his team from where he's from. If you see the end of the season that Newcastle United had, it was absolutely brilliant. They win the top three anyway. And I just knew Eddie Howe had recruited well the players are buying into it. The club, of the, just the atmosphere around the, the city is incredible at the moment. They, they, they know they're on a crest of a wave here. And Amanda Staveley yet again, has now come out and said that the women's team this week, it's been announced that they're going to go and, and get themselves in as paid players as well. Um, that's a new step. Instead of it being a pathway for a development, there was a huge pathway there for the women in the community. That's huge. Um, so again, it's just, just magnificent. I stand by it. The game was... Incredible. I think it's probably the, going to be the game of the season when we look back, and it's, it's so early on. Um, Credit Man City, the champions, for coming back. That's what they do. But Newcastle, to get a point out of that game, they would have been delighted.
3: I, I think it showed there's some weakness in City, though, didn't it, Bridgie? Like they didn't deal with yeah, St Maximum yeah. at all. Um, but back to Newcastle just for a second. I'm going to run you through some stats because I think they're really important. Um, Their coach should be feeling a little bit more secure after re signing. This side does have pace and it has quality quality players. There's no doubt about that. Howe admitted to changing his back line a little bit for this game to deal with players like Haaland, and he agreed that they would play aggressive football, which I think is, is a mindset because a lot of teams come up against the power of City and say, okay, well, we're going to play defensive and we're going to play on the counter, right? But they didn't. They went out there aggressive. But here comes some stats for you for the for the first couple of games. I know it's only a couple of games, but I still think it's impressive. They featured um, they feature as surprise leaders in high turnovers pressed sequences and possession one in the final third. So they've started their sequences higher upfield than any other side except for City. Most of their defense is obviously led by Gomeris, He's right up there in the positive through balls as well, but the mental piece here is how how created confidence in this side so that they they considered he told them to consider themselves as equals for this match and they believed him and they delivered and that came off the back of of numbers. So you know, I think as it's all good to have great players out there and to compete but when you when you change the mindset from a defensive one to an attacking one and you go after it and there's something for the players to believe in. I think it you know, it, it speaks mountains. And yes, good on City for coming back. And they do that very well. But I think it's exposed some weakness in that side.
2: Amy, I'm going to take that minute clip of you talking about exactly what you've just mentioned on Newcastle United. I'm going to go to the training ground tomorrow. I'm going to deliver that to Eddie Howe. You're going to put a smile on his face because that is exactly the things that he has been working on in pre-season I've been speaking to the staff behind the scenes Ben Dawson who's one of the first team coaches there he said they have worked so intense and so hard on that front to get on the front foot and make sure when one presses the whole team press rather than pressing as individuals and the whole talk of the first game of the season against Forest everybody that was sitting around me in the ground was going how how dynamic are we as a team now and defensively and offensively, superb. So that's why I'm sticking by my guns. And you've just backed up um, why Eddie Howe is such a good coach.
0: Um, just to jump in there, Bridgie, as well. I mean, you look at basically what Eddie Howe has achieved since he got there. And they are just absolutely flying. I mean, yeah. just how impressive is that considering
2: where Newcastle were when he took over? Absolutely frightening. I don't, I don't think um, he was in consideration because he's actually going for the Celtic job. And when he when he turned it down, and obviously Ange got himself in there, um, I'm delighted because it's panned out fantastically well. I know my old colleague, Ian Hart, um, who is now a football agent, who I played with at Leeds United. Um, he was very, very heavily involved in getting uh, Eddie Howe to Newcastle United because of his relationship with Amanda Stavely um, when they lived close to work together in, in Yorkshire. So there's a lot of things that ha- had developed to make this happen. And Hartley had seen Eddie Howe work previously so I'm I'm all for him I, I, again I probably got laughed at um, through the the Optus Twitter feeds and the Optus Twitter background when he was manager of Bournemouth I said I would love to see Eddie Howe be an England manager one day and I think he's going about the right way him and Graham Potter they'll be one of them will succeed um, Gavis Southgate.
1: On the weekend that Manchester United played Liverpool how many years or how many more meetings between these teams until Newcastle versus Manchester City is actually the top two Can they ever actually aspire to that being a fixture of the status (laughs) of Liverpool and Man United? I know that both uh, the City Football Group and Newcastle's owners would would love one day, PIF, would love one day to be as beloved and have the history. But in our lifetime, Bridgie, or maybe not possible that they can can ever grow the... It may be that important in terms of deciding the title, but will it ever be that important as far as the global footprint that Manchester United versus Liverpool can create in the Premier League?
2: I think Newcastle United have got the bigger fan base because then, then Manchester City. I'm going to say that. Or globally, um, can they ever get globally as big as Manchester United and Liverpool off the field? I don't think so, because Liverpool and Manchester United history speaks volumes. However, the money that, <laughs> that Newcastle United have and Manchester City have and Paris Saint-Germain have, can anybody come close to them? No. So if they want to get players, they're going about it very strategically. They're not just going out and Amanda Staveley is not just throwing everything at this. They're doing it strategically. They've got the training ground improvements to come next. There's talk that they may change the stadium from St. James Park because they can't extend that anymore. Um, because of the, you know, the the heritage around the around the, the city. So there's a lot of things that they've got in place. But I do think that in our lifetime, we will definitely see these two being the top dogs because it's all down to money, sadly. Uh, and they're the two richest clubs in the world.
1: We'll see them being the top dogs as far as going for the title. But how long, Amy, will it take for them to be beloved and to sort of cre- create the uh, the occasion? Everybody loves Geordie's.
3: Oh, come on, Bridgie. Um, I think... <laughs> <laughs> firstly city I don't, I don't know I know they're amazing and I take my hat off every single time but I really struggle to to create an emotional connection with outside that's just me sitting on the outside okay I, I struggle with it um,
2: and who do you support? Yeah, I know.
3: <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> it's not about that because I love a lot of other teams too, you know, and, and I love watching that game on the weekend because it was very entertaining. But does it have that Derby feel and can it have that Derby feel, Bridgie? I don't I don't think so because I think that takes years, years and years and years of high-quality matches, comebacks, amazing moments, years of what we saw on the weekend um, to build – you know, it's generational. So I I'd, I'd, I disagree.
2: I'm only 44. I hope I make it till I'm 88. So another 44 maybe, years maybe. of this, that can create history. Yeah. Believe you, you me. You on
3: your walking frame. If you
2: had that
0: game that they played <laughs> on the weekend... Yeah, that exact game, and that was first versus second, and it's the 38th game of the season. I think you'd, uh, if you're saying something a little bit different, Amy, I think it would be a little bit more exciting. Although I think it's it's already got the name down, Pat. It's El Kashiko. Put it in the diary.
3: El Kashiko. I love
2: that. <laughs> That's why you get paid the big bucks, Jake, for s*** <laughs> <shit> like that.
1: <laughs> There's one other really good story out of this game. Jared Gillett, the Australian, was the referee. He got praised on social media by John Terry during the game for his refereeing performance. Amy... How good is it to see a referee as arguably Australia's highest performer in the Premier League? We'd love it to be players. Hopefully it will be players well, before too he's long. He's
3: the only one on the pitch at the moment, isn't he? So it's a little bit sad. We've got Tyrese Francois, yeah, from Fulham.
1: Given that uh, we, we regularly read in the English press about how the game is under threat due to a lack of referees, how important is the role Jared Gillard is playing for Australian referees as someone that every association and every local Every local park and every local club each weekend can point to that this is where your refereeing career can take you.
3: Well, I, it's a dream, isn't it? And I think, you know, as a player aspires to play in the top leagues in the world as a referee, I'm sure you aspire to referee at the top. Why anyone would want to do that job, I still don't understand. But... Um, you know, I, I I think the tough thing here is that there's only two referees from outside the UK in in that whole system at the moment. Uh, Dermot Gallagher, who came from Ireland to England when he was 16, um, and the other is obviously Jared. So if you want a referee in the Premier League, you it's like you need to come from that background and come through that pathway. And and I I think it would be the same, you know, in, in a lot of other leagues around the world. I'm assuming in Italy or in the Bundesliga, but the pathway to becoming a professional ref is, oh, it's tough, isn't it? Like I, I wouldn't put up with that. I, it, as a player, you drop it, but you make huge sacrifices. And if I can just talk about Bridgie Jarrod's pathway there, because it wasn't the standard pathway. He he actually has a PhD in biomechanics. <laughs> he moved over to the UK on a research visa. He started in League Two in 2019. So. He's done the hard yards and he's had to do it a different way. It wasn't just a natural progression to go up there. We know him because he's, you know, obviously World Cups and A League ref of the year. But for him personally to get to the top, I think it shows there is a pathway there. Do I think we're going to see every referee that, you know, becomes the top referee here in Australia go over there? No, I don't.
2: Yeah, Amy, it's fantastic. The mentoring he's had from a guy called Mark Clattenburg, who's from my area in the northeast of England, went on to be a fantastic Premier League referee. And he kind of took Jared under his wing when I met him in Melbourne um, at the Crown Casino and just said how good this guy was going to be and he was going to do everything in his power to help him. And I, I love that. And, and what you've said there, Theo, as well, is that there is a pathway now for players. So I've just got to quickly say, if there's any people listening, technical directors of your football clubs in Australian in the Australian company, the amount of fees that the kids are paying to play and register for football, what they need to do is get every one of them junior kids, they should pay for them that ten or twenty dollar. Deposit to get them on the online refereeing course. And then what the kids do, they referee your junior games for you. They get paid back the money um, for each game that they referee. So then the parents are getting some funding back. My son and daughter did it with Cooks Hill Football Club. I got the Edgeworth Eagles Football Club to do it. And then what you do, you learn the respect of the referee so you don't back answer. You can change the culture of that kind of thing because my kids will never shout now. The biggest issue is the parents shouting at them from the sideline. They're getting paid to referee. And there's my mate's son, um, a guy called Rory Hersey. Remember the name. He is now an up-and-coming referee who realised a couple of years ago he wasn't going to have a career in football as a player. He carried on doing his referee's courses, and he went and paid and got educated more, and I can guarantee you he'll be in the A-League referee in the next three to four years, I hope, and he'll go on to be a world-class referee. So there's a pathway and there's a way to do it. And it's a way of giving back some of the fees to give kids another little go.
1: But just one last one on, on refereeing, Bridgie. When the Premier League year has started, the influx of foreign players is one of the things that revolutionised the competition and has turned it into the powerhouse that it is today. Amy mentioned to us before, only two referees from outside the UK, one of them from Ireland, not a huge leap, the other one from a colony, part of the Commonwealth in Australia. Why is it that the Premier League does not target the best referees in the world and the same way that they have become a home of importing talent for players is the next step of evolution for the Premier League to become one that also has all of the best referees?
2: If they had the if that's what they wanted, that's what they will go and get. And I'm I'm delighted that like you say there is two um outs two you know referees outside of the outside of um England have broke that mould. And if they continue to do the, 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 you know, referee the way they are doing, the Premier League will change their dynamics. However, inside that refereeing, um, so we say in a sanctum, they're looking after their own jobs as well. By the yeah. way, so you know what I mean. It's like there's only so many jobs available, and they've only got, and they're going to protect their entity no matter what you do. So you've got to be damn good, or you've got to be able to get in somehow. So that's that's the only thing I would say. I don't want to upset the refereeing. Um, community over here in case I become a coach one day and they go they're going to get that man He'd try to get the Australians and everybody else yeah. jobs that's all I will see it is very very tough
3: I think we've got there's world class talent in the refereeing stakes right around the world and um, you know we see that on a weekly basis but the, the only the only thing I, I agree with Bridget the only thing I could come up with was that if you're breeding, breeding, I shouldn't say that, if you're creating referees, (laughs) if you're creating referees through the ranks from the juniors right through and then they're in the championship and all of a sudden that's the ceiling instead of the Premier League, where do those guys go and what do they aspire to do? Um, So if you start creating this, you know, a a global market for referees, it, it does. It sort of takes the pathway away from those that are born and bred there and you might end up with a shortage in your own country.
1: Oh, Those are excellent points. We are going to talk about some of the struggling teams. We'll also touch in on La Liga. The transfer window is closing and also a little bit of Socceroos chat too. That's all coming up after this very short break. You're listening to the Gaggenpod, the Optus Sport Football Podcast.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot.
1: In today's pod, we've got former Premier League star Michael Bridges, former Matilda Amy Duggan, and sports editor here at Optus Sport, Jake Rosengarten. We're going to get on to some of the strugglers and the cellar dwellers, the likes of Aston Villa, Wolves, Everton, West Ham, and Leicester. They've all had starts that would have underwhelmed their own fans. And you look at some of the managers... Who is in the biggest amount of trouble at the moment? When we discussed the sack race pre-season, Amy, I know that you didn't necessarily have Brendan Rodgers as the top name, but you definitely didn't like Leicester City's prospects for the season ahead. So how close is Brendan Rodgers to the hot seat and the exit door?
3: I think it would be unfair to sack Brendan Rodgers based on what he has said about his team and the lack of support he's had from his club. So I'm just going to come straight out and say they're a product of their unproductive off-season and transfer window. Um thank god they have Madison, that's all I'll say and that stems this I think this goes back to February their own gaffer said Brendan Rodgers said they're stale and they need a healthy shake up right he admitted openly he was open to selling players to create dollars to buy new ones but it didn't happen they were the least productive in the in the transfer window they let in they've let in I think last year they were joint league like leakers from set pieces. Um, They've again conceded two goals from dead balls this campaign and their winless start to the season just shows defensively they they need something else. They're vulnerable there. So, you know, is his head on the chopping block? Probably. Do I think it's fair? No, because he's called out where he thinks the problems are and he's not getting the support from his club.
2: I wouldn't be surprised if the club don't make a decision and Brendan Rodgers actually makes a decision himself. They've just scraped through tonight on penalties in the EFL Cup. Um, you know, you talk about Gerrard; they've they've just got through Bolton. Um, they had they had a good win, and Everton got a win tonight in the EFL Cup. But both teams did look very vulnerable early on in this. However, Leicester looked a shambles, and the scrape through on penalties. I wouldn't be surprised if Brent, Brent, Brendan Rodgers has enough. And the thing that really surprised me from him and how I know the game has changed is the lad that obviously doesn't want to play is down to is I have to sign a new contract Fafana wants to get away um, and Rogers, like you said, Amy he's come out and actually defended the player um, I would have been hanging him out to dry and just saying he's a disgrace he doesn't want to be part of this club anymore after signing a new contract so it's he's in a very, very tough position and I really feel for Brendan Rogers. and I, I wouldn't be surprised if you see him walk before he gets sacked
0: Yeah, I think it it could potentially be soon as well, Bridgie, to be honest. I mean, there were some rumours going around on the weekend that he had been sacked, uh, which obviously wasn't the case. Um, Amy, you touched on the lack of signings. Not a single outfield player into the club this window. Um, They're in big trouble. They're in big trouble. I mean, Madison obviously was targeted by Newcastle. He hasn't gone yet. Fafana looks... Looks out the door. Didn't play on the weekend. wasn't wasn't in the right frame of mind, according to Brendan Rodgers, who also benched Yuri Tielemans. I mean, where do they turn it around? I just, it's it's big trouble. I, I, the question I have is, is Brendan Rodgers has been there for so many years? They've had so many highs. I mean, um, pushing for the top four, getting so close twice, winning the FA Cup. I mean, has has Brendan Rodgers taken Leicester as far as he can? I mean, uh, that's the question I'd be asking. Oh
2: without a shadow of a doubt and I, th- I think that's the frustrating thing for him when you're when you're selling your best players and you're not getting anybody in the transfer window you you either know that your time is limited or you know that the club is now just tightening up and securing their future and they've got vision elsewhere because I thought Leicester since they won the Premier League you know you saw the the investment off the field and how well they were doing it with the new training ground and everything like that, and I just I don't know whether they're trying to reap that money back from the sale of the players without investing because they've got a sort the payments out for the training facilities. We don't know, but there's definitely something going on. Whether it's not Rogers they trust in, or it's whether the finances in the club that they're not trusting in the owners.
1: So the thing for me is, uh, Bridget, you touched on a good point. Could Rogers walk away himself? Is the fact he hasn't broken glass in case of emergency a sign that he's mentally checked out here? Because my question to you is what are the craziest things or the, the most desperate things that you've seen an under-pressure manager do to inspire and lift the team? Rogers, by his own admission, as we heard from Amy, he said the group's stale. Isn't it not incumbent on him to come in yeah. with a bit of variety, something yeah. to surprise or challenge or motivate the players? And I hear you laughing there. Can you, can you think of an instance where a manager has basically, because they want to keep their job, because they don't want to leave the club, they have basically pulled out the stops to try something to turn things around?
2: Yeah, and I was there with Peter Reid, absolutely brilliant. Whenever we were under in, in trouble and under pressure, Peter Reid would go to the club and he would say, listen, I need to take the lads away for a week um, to Mottram Hall in Manchester, a bit of team bonding, we'll go to the hotel, we'll do some training, we'll have some nights out and we'll play some golf and we'll get drunk. And if the club turned around and said no, then Peter Reid would take us because he loved a week away. Uh, it actually did galvanise us as a team, but what happened, the lads ended up getting divorced left, right and centre because Peter Reid was taking us away every other. Bloody week, and uh, the players never got to see their families and friends. I was a young lad at the time, I loved it because I didn't have any ties. And um, <laughs> it, 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 but times have changed, and I would hate to recommend this to Leicester City because the past history that they have got when they travel. Um, there's a lot of stories in Leicester's history that has happened and it cost Pearson his job at one stage. So I wouldn't recommend that. But like you say, that he's got to find something that is going to motivate them. And that's why I think he's lost his spark with this because he's the man that always tries to do things outside the box. We saw him on the Liverpool documentary when he tried the old Alex Ferguson trick with the three letters. I just think he's lost his sparkling and his desire. But um, I used to love Peter Reid. Yeah, he, he was a good man for the um, team bonding.
1: Uh, Amy, same question to you. The The strangest, almost desperate uh, strategy or approach you've seen from a gaffer to try and galvanise the group or get a turnaround in performance.
3: Yeah, how does chair throwing in the change room sound and being screamed at didn't really work, by the way. It just smashed our confidence even more. Um I, I really <laughs> Who struggled did he throw to a think. Carrot? Yeah. That's that's a that's a beers story. Um it, it's you know I really struggled to think about this, and in fact the one that popped into my head is a weird one which uh, didn't work either. It was Arteta when he made his um, his side train to the Liverpool song You'll Never Walk Alone to recreate some Anfield atmosphere um before their game and I um I think that didn't work because I think they lost four 0 so
2: well, a couple of speakers at the side of the training ground is not really going to emulate Anfield, let me tell well, you.
3: We did this at the AIS Bridgie way back when and um, our women's side wasn't used to crowds and our coach blared through speakers the entire time during training, this crowd noise. and It was it was horrendous. I don't know if it worked or didn't work, but um, it was horrendous. It gave me a headache, I can tell you that much.
2: Having worked under Gary Van Egmont as my coach, I would have loved to have had speakers blasting at the side of the pitch from the crowd just to drown out <laughs> the dribble cool. that he used to shout at us on the sidelines. Oh,
3: Yeah, there's yeah some crazy stuff out there. I'm not sharing sorted stories like Bridgie, obviously, but um, it's
1: a shame maybe you haven't actually told us a story that worked. All the ones you've mentioned here are ones that backfired.
3: Yeah, because I think the only way you I I don't know the only way you bring a team together is through that common goal, isn't it? And that desire to win and um, good results breed good results. It's you know teams always look fantastic when they're winning. Um, You really see team camaraderie and what's going on in a club when they're losing. Um, and I think it's a lot harder to, to build that um, to build that when you're losing, which is why I think I was so inspired by Manchester's win on the weekend because we all know how terrible it's been there and to see them come together and work as a team passionately was, was awesome.
1: Bridget, take us behind the curtain on the management style of Ian Holloway. We love him in the media, fans and uh, journalists alike, but what's your story there?
2: Yeah, he's made for the media and the journalism. And, you know, I I think he's lost his tarnish because you can't get away with things in the game now that you hear stories about Ian Holloway when he was a manager. And one of the funniest ones, the lad said that the manager had come in, they'd just had another loss. And I can't remember what club it was at, but he came and he basically said, right, you lot in the gymnasium now. And they all thought that they were going to get punished and get run you know get run ragged or do a fitness session um a bit like Tan hag did with the man united players and what they actually did he had a he had you know um dodgeball have you seen the movie dodgeball
3: oh my god what he you had smack he a had ball
2: a dodgeball it? dodgeball ring set up in the gymnasium with loads of balls ready to go and Ian Holloway came in last and he had a pair of y front underpants on with socks pulled up to his knees and he had like a, a bandana around his head as if he was the guy off um, off the dodgeball movie and he said right the lot he is now and he took on everybody in the team allegedly in his underwear in the gymnasium and the lads just didn't know what the hell I think that's, this scarring. Guy was crazy. that's
3: scarring that's but-
2: scarring It's scoring, it did, but they went on to win three or four games after that because the manager, the boys felt they had a relationship with Ian Holloway after that. Didn't last very long, but he's just meant to be a lunatic. So, you know, I think it, it, management does crazy things to people at times. And I think uh, Holloway is one of the standouts.
1: Bridgie, you're taking us through the classic 2000s movies here on The Geggin' Pod because we had Wedding crashes last season. Now we've got Dodgeball. I'm looking forward to what you've got uh, in, in the pocket next. Uh, Jake, last one before we, we move off uh, the struggling managers. Steven Gerrard, Frank Lampard, Bruno Large. Who is actually, from your point of view, winning the sack race at the moment?
0: Um, I don't know who goes first. I think. Gerard is going to be under increasing pressure if Villa can't start getting results soon the amount of money they've spent the team they have on paper I mean he, he's he got to start winning games otherwise he's going to come under fire enormously because that's a club with ambition and they they really want to want to compete and they're just not there at the moment and they haven't shown to be there I mean I think Frank Lampard at Everton's an interesting one um, for me I don't think he's the right man I don't think he ever has been the right man but that's that that's my personal opinion I think that Again, it's it's one of those ones where we're so early in the season. I mean, last year we saw Zisco Munoz go so early, um, winning that sack race. I think we won't see anyone go quite as early this season, barring something absolutely cataclysmic. But um, yeah, those sorts of guys are, are all they need to start winning games soon. I think um, Bruno Large will be sort of um, emboldened and, and sort of happy-ish with with the way Wolves have started, despite the the points tally. Um, but yeah, I think I think Lampard and Gerrard are sort
2: of uh, having their own personal duel at the moment. <laughs> Jake, I couldn't agree more with you. Have you seen Stevie G's next few matches as well, by the way? West Ham, who haven't scored a goal, so you're under pressure there. West Ham are looking for a result. Then you've got Arsenal, top of the table, and then they've got Man City. Well, they're that could in be trouble. three, three losses. But he's, yeah, he's under massive, massive pressure. The
0: problem is that he doesn't have credit in the bank. You look at West Ham, it doesn't really yeah. matter for yeah. Moisey that they've gone 0-3. He's got massive credit in the bank. I mean, Lampard as well, no real credit in the bank. Although, I think Lampard still has the, the caveat that he's he's playing without a recognised number nine. I mean, um, that's the one thing. I mean, Gerrard's got nothing. Gerrard's got a squad that, that has Oli Watkins, Philip Coutinho and Danny Ings up top, and they're, they're not really doing
2: it. I'm a massive fan of Stevie G's. I want him to succeed. I hope he turns around because you know, what he had in his career, what he did at Rangers, uh, I just don't feel he needs this. This uh, He'll he'll pull through. He's a winner.
1: We're going to switch pace now and talk about La Liga. Let's start with the one big star Aussie that we have, Awa Mabil. Unfortunately, his Kadith team are struggling. A couple of 2-0 losses. They didn't look great at the weekend. Mabil played just over an hour before getting subbed off. Uh, Bridgie, do they have the resources to stay up? Or is this going to be a, a real season of struggle here? for Kadith and our mobile
2: yeah Kadith is a very very struggling team this season I, 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 you know it's great to see him playing and getting game time over there. And I thought the interview he did with Mark Sworter was fantastic flying the flag for um, Australians and you know getting game time just in time for the, the Socceroos during the World Cup as well um, but you, you know when you look at the teams and the, the results that they've had early on and coming in I think that them and Getafe it's almost looking like that'll stay as is at this moment in time the bottom two. I hope I'm wrong. Um I hope he proves me wrong and gets some goals as well. But I've just got to say, like having La Liga and watching it back again, it's on up to sport. You know, we've got we've got players that we've got an affiliation with, but it's the the goals that have been scored this week have been absolutely magnificent. And the red cards, can you believe we had eight red cards in total over this weekend as well? It's been madness. Um but I would love to see say, I, I I think they'll go down, but I think he will do enough this season to prove his worth in that division and he will get a bigger move.
0: So I, I hate to spoil the party, but I did a little bit of reading around Cadiz uh, in the last couple of days. And interestingly enough, and this is, I mean, it's been great to see Awa um, getting big minutes um, sort of playing in the first two weeks of the season, but it, it seems as though Cadiz are actually still active in the transfer market and are actually after another left winger. Um, they've been linked with Mariano Diaz um, from Real Madrid, um, a couple of other players, one from Belgium. Um, so it would be interesting to see sort of what Cadiz do because their they're, uh, CEO, after they survived so narrowly last season, basically said, I'm going to spend every cent I can in order to keep us alive. Um, and they haven't necessarily gone to ham in the transfer market. So I think there they could still be some incoming. And hopefully that doesn't impact um, Mobile's minutes too much. But just just watch this space because it, it sounds like they are targeting a left winger, which is obviously where he plays.
3: Yeah, I, I think he's got a little bit of work to do to start because he, you know he's coming from a place of disadvantage. Not having played a lot of minutes in that type of football um, before, but he has the ability, I think, to to compete well. And um, I think if he gets his chance, we will see some of that magic out on the pitch. I, I don't want to see him remain on the fringe, especially before a World Cup. So it's great to have him there. But if I can go back to their game against Osasuna, they lost 2 0, yes, but they were both penalties. Um, they were both penalties, and I'm not disputing the fact that that was, but I think
2: they still that- lost.
3: They did, but they had their chances too, Bridgie. They really did have their chances, including one that I I can't believe they missed um, on the far post. But I I do also think a win soon to them is super important to their confidence. They have made a couple of signings. I I don't think they're going to climb the ladder, don't get me wrong. I think they will be battling for relegation um, with Getafe, with Elche, um, teams like that. But I – yeah, I – I don't think they're I don't think they're going to go down or at least I'm hopeful they're not going to go down.
2: 10th of September is the big one for him. It's Barcelona, and I'll, I hope he's in the team sheet for that one. That's, you know, it's, a, it's every kid's dream. I had that dream of playing against Barcelona. It, it became a reality in the Champions League. Uh, unfortunately, we got absolutely smashed by Rivaldo and Clivert. But it, you know, I want him to get that moment because it, it's, it's everybody's dream, and he, he deserves that. Amy, just on Real Madrid,
1: have they sold Casemiro at the right time? They've bought in Chuameni, They've got Camavinga, who's playing more and more. Tony Kroos missed at the weekend, and Luka Modric had to turn turn back the clock in order to help Real Madrid win the game. But uh, was now the right time for Casemiro to go, especially that he has gone to Manchester United?
3: Well, there's talk of him wanting to spread his wings and go, I don't know if that's just talk or they've pushed him out. But um, look, it's a smart business decision. Let's not, you know, muck around. 68 million is euros, 68 million euros. It's a lot of money for their club. That's what they do well. Um, but it does mean I think it'll actually hurt Real Madrid a little bit because Ancelotti will now have to count on um, Chuiyamini to move to six, and he's he's been good in the eight. And I, you know, Ancelotti says he has the capacity to play there, but it does leave a little bit of a hole for them in the midfield. As far as uh, Casemiro's move, is he happy with the move? He seems happy with it. it, it you know, they paraded him around on the weekend. I, I look forward to seeing him out on the pitch, um, and if he continues to build on. Their success is great. Um, but yeah, for Real Madrid, I just think it's a smart business decision. <laughs>
2: There's two winners. One is Real Madrid for the amount of money. Um, I know yes. he's, what, it, what he's won has been incredible. The amount of money he's gone for and the amount of money Manchester United have been paying because of desperation to get him over the line. There's two winners and the losers are, can you say the loser Manchester United financially? Yes. As a player, no. They're getting an absolute superstar without a mm. shadow of a doubt. Um, and he's always one player that I've looked at and thought he always looks like me after a big weekend on the beer when he gets the puffy cheeks, but yet he performs oh to a marvellous standard of unbelievable football. So he, he just deceives the amount of running that he's able to do. Um, and yeah, they've, they've got a great player, but I, I, I still I still question whether it, I think Real Madrid are the winners. Yeah,
0: I, I agree with you, Bridget. I don't really understand the criticism around Manchester United signing Casemiro. I mean, for... for the better part of ten years of going, go, oh God, Manchester United need a number six so badly, mm. and they've signed basically the best one in the world. Um, it's a great signing, as far as I'm concerned. Obviously, the money for a player of that age is is uh, questionable. But I mean, from Real Madrid, I mean, they've sort of obviously the the evolution of their midfield has sort of been um, happening in the background with Camavinga coming in. He's still nineteen. Charmany, twenty two. Um, that's that's the next sort of that's the succession planning beyond uh, Modric Modric Cruz and, and Casemiro and it's, it's now being happening and they've done it making money so it's, it's unbelievable from Real Madrid I think yeah. it follows in that sort of footsteps of they got rid of, of Ramos and Varane at, at the perfect time you could argue and they've sort of um, evolu- uh, evolved their defence as well I think they're doing the same in midfield too and it's, it's interesting to see how they'll do the same when, uh, when Benzema gets to that point point. One more on Barcelona
1: as we talk about uh, La Liga and Fadi He has gone under the radar, and when you have presidential elections that are tied to who you're going to sign in the transfer market and you need to promise the world in order to run the club to begin with, was the answer for Barcelona right under their noses all along? He did not have a good campaign last season, but now that he's back, is this going to be his breakout season?
3: I'll just give some background on why he didn't have a great season last season. He came off knee surgery in 2020, and he missed a massive chunk of last season because of a hamstring problem, so I think it's unfair to... Um, you know, to go on him last season. He only played half an hour on the weekend and didn't he change the game? Um, that back heel for the second goal, just that's pretty special. But if you if you watch his highlight, really, he's really great at stuff like that, flicks and, um, and tricks and things that you don't see as, you know, natural parts of the game or what would be a normal move for a player. Um, he also said post-game, post that game on the weekend, that he is not 100% yet. So I think if that's what we're seeing in half an hour and the way he changed the game, I can't wait to see what's to come on La Liga. Um, and also at the World Cup. And then I also think, like, their future looks good, doesn't it? You've got Garvey, you got Pedro, and you've got him all together. Jeez, that that's lethal.
0: Barcelona, unbelievable squad, <laughs> absolutely unbelievable. I mean, everyone—you're absolutely right. Everyone's been talking about all the spending that they've been doing and bringing in players, but Ansu Fati looks something else, and he has since the second he burst onto the scene at 16. I mean, he's he's looked unbelievable, and he's he's almost yeah he's just been forgotten in a way just because of those injury issues, but. Amy, you're absolutely right. I mean, Spain are going to be something else at the World Cup and they've got another generation coming through who look ridiculous, all coming out of um, of Barcelona, vast majority. I mean, uh, Bridgie, I'd love to say, do do you reckon Anto Fatih can actually break into this starting 11? I mean, their front three is already... Down ridiculous. Really, Rafini is not even starting at the moment, I and mean, we saw how good he was in the Premier League. Well,
2: well that's the thing. I mean, I still don't agree what Barcelona have been allowed to get away with. Um, it's exciting for us because we get to see these players, but I, when you look at the financial fair play and the way that they've gone about the business, I still don't agree with it. I still think it stinks, but it's damn exciting. they calling them and competition t- for places. I'm like, yes, <laughs> 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 they, they, they will get found out some way or another, um, but it's, it's great and it's competition for places, but I'm delighted. It's nothing better than seeing a youngster who has been... You know, they get praised, and sometimes it has a detrimental effect on their future. He's got through the press and the, the, the stick, he's handled the stuff with Barcelona, he's handled the injuries, and he's come back and he's doing what he's doing at the age of 19. He's playing football with a smile on his face and scoring goals, and that's what we all want to see from these players. It's a great time to come good again because of the World Cup. Can he get his place? He will definitely be you. It, nobody's guaranteed a starting lineup at Barcelona, probably apart from Lewandowski and Pedri, I would say. Um, and probably Busquets, Um, who else? (laughs) Keep going. (laughs) But but in that front line, they're going to rotate. There's definitely going to be rotation, and he's going to play a major part this season. Not every week, but he's going to be so influential. I'm delighted to see him playing again, because I love attacking players. I love flair players. I love entertainers. He ticks all the boxes.
3: Yeah, and he changed the game, Bridget. It was 1-1 when he came on, wasn't it? And they won 4-1. Completely
1: changed the game. Let's go into a bit of transfer talk. There's one week left in the window. So this time next week, the Gig and pod will be wrapping up who made some deadline day moves and who made a panic buy right at the end of the window. Let's just go around uh, the panel. One team, one move. What do you want to see? What does it need to be? Your free choice. Jack
0: Rosengarten, we'll start with you a really good question. I'd love to see Liverpool sign a midfielder. I really would. I've wanted to see it for a couple of years now. I'd love to see it happen. I think it has to happen right now if it's going to happen. I don't see Klopp doing it, to be honest, but I'd love to see it.
3: So I was going to say Liverpool needs midfielders as well. And then I was going to say Leicester needs anything. <laughs> um, and I think the Hammers, to get out of trouble, need a creative striker and probably a new left back, which it seems like they may have done overnight anyway. Um, or at least they've signed Emerson, which will bolster, which will bolster them there and, and give them some speed.
2: Well, the good news for um, Wolves, if anybody gets the opportunity to see the EFL goal tonight that Wolves scored, it's Traore is back and he just banged him on in the top corner. It's a wonder goal. So, they, you know, they've, they've got a, a, another key player back after he went to Barcelona. Um, Everton desperate for a striker. Everton desperate for a midfielder. Everton desperate for a left back. Um and like and probably I, I a new coach Amy. in a couple just, of weeks. <laughs> uh, yes, potentially. I, I but I just think Leicester, they, I feel for Brendan Rodgers they've got to get somebody in. And when you look around the rest of the the you know, the window, Forest have brought in thousands, um Fulham have Fulham have done well, Newcastle, Brighton, Tottenham have done incredible. So yeah, and they're I, still looking I at Daniel the, James in in around the bottom, yeah, 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 and in around the bottom. Um I disagree with you, Amy though, on West Ham. Because they, I, I think you may see the next week that we may have a change in formation for West Ham. And I hope he does it. And I hope he gives um, Antonio the opportunity to play up front and alongside the new signing Scamica because... He did well in the Europa League. The two big powerhouses, and I think well, the two of them would complement each other. So I, um, I'm the only one I'm disagreeing with you on there, partner. I'm sorry.
3: Well, you should you should send it to Moisey because you know with three losses and sitting in last place, they can yeah. do with they any need advice, goals. Bridget. They've got to
0: try something different. Chelsea are now willing to pay sixty million pounds for Anthony Gordon, which we all know Chelsea's got their problems in attack after losing Lukaku. They need to recognise number nine, just like Everton do. Fridgey. Um, why on earth would Chelsea pay sixty million pounds for Anthony Gordon?
2: I, I don't want to upset the kid, but um, I don't know. I've, I, I think I was born thirty years too late because if he's worth sixty million, I'm worth a hundred. Um, I was thinking exactly the, that overnight. <laughs> it, it, it's absolutely madness. Um, I don't know what it is. Whether that's whether it's because of they're trying to get the, their quota of the English-based players for the books to balance the books. In that regard, you find the English players always go with a higher tag. Um, However, Everton have come back and counteracted and said that they want a couple of the um, uh, Chelsea players as a part deal as well. So you may see that figure come down. And you may see two players going in exchange the other way. Um, but, yeah, well, I mean, if, if I'm Gordon, I'm going and doing somersaults all around my bedroom. Mate, Anthony Gordon has four Premier League goals to his name. Well, there you go. I had 21. is <laughs> uh, now worth 100
3: $150 million. Million. Um <laughs> Tell you. <ya, tell> <laughs> hey, Bridget, can I just go off-tact <laughs> a little bit there because I want to talk about number nines for a second. I, I've got a question. So many clubs um, before this season were all after a number nine. Are we seeing the game evolve to where we're using a number nine differently.
2: Yeah, well, the the man that changed the whole thing in the in the number nine was Drogba. For it went from every team played a front two in my my time, and Drogba became the the out and out uh, striker. And now we're getting the false nine. I think it's it's evolving. You're still going to get players. That can play with their back, back to the goal. As I say, to hold the ball up and bring others in. You've got, you've got other number nines that'll drift into that midfield number ten spot, and that's why you need midfield runners and wide men to, to be able to get narrower and go in behind. So I, I just think the dynamics of um, the game is is evolving all the time for the number nine, and I think it's a luxury that we get to see so many different types of players uh, nowadays rather than the old English number nine that I was used to. You had to be big, strong, and powerful. Uh, It's completely changing, and um, I'm I'm all for that, Amy. I don't think it's too set in stone. However, I think you may see over the next few years that front two may develop once again in in certain teams.
1: Well, one last transfer I'll throw out there because the Americans are going crazy about it. The idea of Christian Pulisic leaving Chelsea and going to Leeds and linking up with Jesse Marsh just to... Bring it full circle for our Premier League chat today. Let's wait and see what madness unfolds. Okay, to finish with here on the Gegan Pod, uh, Graham Arnold sat down with Gus Hiddink, the famous Socceroos boss that took the team to the 2006 World Cup. Let's just hear a little bit of that audio.
0: If I asked you, Goose, to come to Australia to be part of my staff and to work together with me for this New Zealand game to help celebrate the Socceroos and the nation, would you come? You invite me now. Yeah, you invite me. Hundred percent. How long do
2: I have? How long do I have to think? Uh, I don't think. I'm, I'm. I don't think. I'm coming. You coming? I, 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 are you serious? Are no, You joking serious. or you serious?
0: No, no, I'm serious, boss. When, we, when we, you are you serious? The nation would love, you, we used love to... to see you again. I'd love then to see I you love, again.
1: Then I love. Then I love. I love. I love to come. I will be there. So, Jake, as a motivational tactic ahead of the friendlies against New Zealand and in the countdown to the World Cup, uh, what did you make of this approach to... Bring back uh, a bit of nostalgia. I know we can OD on it at times, especially when it comes to the 2005 World Cup qualifier. But what did you make of this move to bring back Goose Hitting? It certainly proved incredibly uh, popular. We love on a good sugar
0: hit in Australian football, Theo, and this is one of the greats. I mean, bringing back Goose, wh- why not? I mean, uh, it sounds like the the basis for it was uh, Renee Mullenstein is, is over in Europe and isn't getting back for these games, which also double as the uh, celebration of 100 years of the Socceroos. So why not bring out the greats? So why not bring out the icon, Smash the glass, bring Goose back in. He's not doing anything. Get him, get, him, get him back on deck and get everyone around him. Why not the nostalgia hit? I
3: thought his um, his singing was fantastic uh, although he got the words a little bit wrong so I thought that was pretty funny. You sung
2: one of my favourite songs, Amy.
3: Well, yes. Down Under. I'll just leave it right there. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm not going to do a rendition but I bloody loved it. And I, Do you know what I really enjoyed watching as well? I, I thought the rapport between Graham Arnold and Gus was absolutely magic. You could tell that the you could you could tell the the respect of both, and you know, being a mentor and the way they've they've kept in touch, and the way he, he congratulated Graham Arnold on the success that he'd done achieving the world. I just thought watching watching it in the camaraderie between the two, it was really really refreshing, and it just looked so genuine. I think that's why it's um that, that that's what give me my little sugar fix.
3: Yeah, well, they'd had success together before, and I think um you know when you've had those shared experiences and they're great memories, then you you know. True friends support true friends' success, don't they? And I think that's what we saw there. Um, And the
0: the banter, the banter's
2: obviously there too.
3: Oh yeah, giving him grief about losing his hair. That's the one.
0: (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> that was that was tremendous, absolutely tremendous. Not many people would say that, to Graham Arnold. By the way, because he would knock them out.
1: Well, it, it, nice to finish on a, a light-hearted note. Of course, with the end of the transfer window uh, and as we get closer to the friendlies against New Zealand and the countdown of the World Cup, we'll have some serious matters to talk about in Australian football in the coming weeks on the Pod, But that's a nice way to wrap it up. Just a reminder that the Pod comes out each Wednesday during the season. Some of the highlights this weekend, Girona versus Celta starts La Liga at 4am on Saturday morning Australian Eastern Standard Time and then is followed by Real Betis against Osasuna, two teams that have made flying starts to the season. So one of them will be right up there challenging after the end of that one. There's a J-League doubleheader from 8pm Saturday Australian Eastern Standard Time and then we get into the Premier League Weekend With Southampton against Manchester United from 9.30pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. And we're just a couple of short weeks away from the FA Women's Super League returning with all our fantastic Matildas. And of course plenty of those English champions from Women's Euro as well. All of it is live and on demand on the Optus Sport app. And on behalf of Jake Rosengarten, Amy Duggan and Michael Bridges. I'm your host Teo Pelizzari. Please make sure you subscribe and rate us five stars as well. Why not? Thank you for listening to the Optus Sport Football Podcast. This was the Gigan Pod.
2: I come from a land from down under. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Every now and every now and then, it's on on radio. But I start, hey, 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 it's hey, my song. That's my song. I tell tell people around me.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at fifty to eighty percent less than other high end brands. And the best part.